See? Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. swear to everybody in this room that one of these days I'm going to let that song play all the way through to the end because I, I, love it, I love it so much. I'm actually, I meant to ask you, what is the origin of that song? You don't know the group? No. Do you know the group, Chris? The band? You got it right there. It's the band? First yeah. guess. Oh, I, yeah, okay. The I know band. the band. I only know because we play the song every show. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you I know realized. it was the band? Yeah, I mean, I... I well, it sounds I, like them. I was alive when that song first came out, so, you know, just letting you know. I think I was alive, too. I bet you were. Um, but Laura, who's the baby here, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. she, I may, was, she I may not was, have been. Maybe. <laughs> I'll never tell. I mean, what, it must come out 69? Probably. Yeah, some, sometime in the mid to late 60s. No you know. comment. <laughs> So, all right, everybody, this is the Organic Farm Stand, as you can tell from this uh, completely discursive blather with which we started the show. Chris uh, Ferrio is here, Laura Modlin is here, and Steve Munno is here. Steve, are you there with us? Yes, glad to be with you. Indeed, great to have you. Thanks for uh, taking a break from uh, your uh, onerous farm duties to be on the air with us. It is a hot one out there. Yeah. Yeah, one more of one of the hottest days of the year. Incredible, right? I'm telling you, I was really polite during the heat wave over the summer, but now that it's after Labor Day, (laughs) I don't have any tolerance for it anymore. Yeah, I know you posted on on Facebook, fake summer was bad enough, but fake fake winter was was more, was easier to take than fake fall. Oh, okay. Fake winter. I thought you said fake, because you didn't you say fake summer, because like in the spring... Yeah, in June, it was like spring. Okay, I don't know. It's very confusing. But it, in any case, we are we are experiencing, as Laura said, fake fall. Right. <laughs> and as I was driving down on 95, by the way, my, my name is Richard Hill, in case I didn't mention that. And as I was driving down on 95 today, my temperature was 95. No, it was actually 90. And that that's pretty remarkable because it was 
not even noontime yet. It was like 11.15 or something. And whoa, so it's going to go up in probably 92, 93 probably today. Steve, what's it, what's it like out there? I mean, you just said it's tough to be in the, I guess, exposed to it. But like... Yeah, what, it's... it's- it's quite hot. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm by a fan right now, happily, and indoors. But the moment you walk outside, the, the heat hits you, you know, from above and also from the ground, kind of radiating radiating it back at you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing our, our little weather station here says 92 degrees, 99 percent humidity, and a heat index of 141 right now. Oh my God! I think it's going to go up to 95 here in Bridgeport today. Yeah, Bridgeport gets gets it. You know, the cities always get a little hotter. Well, let me just mention that what we're going to be doing today. Actually, we have a full program, really, really full, really, really great show coming up here. Excited. What was that? I'm excited. It's going to be great. Ed Sullivan couldn't have uh, introduced us with any more fervor. Um, (laughs) It's it's another name at Laura Pro. Really great show. Yeah, really, really. So, um, you know, what we have is Laura Modlin's uh, Solar Lunar Report, which is coming up in a moment, Steve Mono's Small Farms Report, which will follow, and then uh, Vincent Kay will be here at about 20 after. A little bit of an abbreviated report from Vincent because we have two very important events that are going to happen here on the air today. In honor of Labor Day, we're calling this Labor Day Week, um, uh, we have two people who are going to talk about working on farms. One of them is a college student. You want to mention yeah, that? Bria Church um, is in her first year of college at UVM. She's from Westport, Connecticut. And the last two summers, she's interned at Wakeman Town Farm in Westport. So, And we're going to hear about what it's like to work on a small farm in a very wealthy community, Westport, Connecticut. I, that's really not relevant. She's working on a farm. That's the important thing. <laughs> she does real work. She, <laughs> yeah. she yeah, does. Her, the wealth of Westport does not protect her from the hard labor of being on a farm. All right. And then uh, after that, we're going to be hearing from uh, Megan Fountain, who is the co-director or assistant director of ULA, which is Unidad Latina en Acción, which is a an immigrant rights organization based in New Haven, if I'm not mistaken. And they do all kinds of activism and support to undocumented people who are trying to survive in a sometimes very hostile environment. And so uh, Megan is going to talk to us about a, f- a farm worker that she interviewed a, a Connecticut farm worker and, and what it's like wow. uh, for an undocumented person to be working on, on a farm. We're not even sure, you know, what farm, what kind of farm work it is, but we're going to find out. So it should be really interesting, right? We have two contact, contrasting farm Hard-working work. people. Yeah, hard-working pro- people in different environments. Yeah, and, and no matter what the farm work, especially Steve can attest to this in this weather, it's, it's whatever it is, it's hard. Oh man! You're in a greenhouse, or maybe with fans, but you're still, no matter what, there's no protection. I, uh, you, I may actually today have to tell my retell my stories, which I've told about about a thousand times, about my uh, agricultural work in the um, Salinas Valley in California, many, many, many years. I wow. should say decades ago. Yeah, I've told the story. Though. Did you, you meet sure John Steinbeck? <laughs> 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 he 
based his story Ouch. on you. Ouch, that was uncalled for. <laughs> These stories are true, uh, you know. Uh, John Steinbeck made up everything he wrote. Uh, he didn't. He didn't actually do any farm work. Okay. So oh no, just, I, I know. So I did but, work, but right? a very uh, real, um, realistic descriptions of what people went through. Un, unquestionably, uh, one of our greatest writers. All right, let's move right into the solar lunar report. Laura, All right, what do you got um, for us? We just had this incredible moon thing. Oh my! I, I'm so sorry that I wasn't here before that blue moon. I mean, it's going to be hard for September to top August because we had two super moon um, full moons in August, and the second one was obviously a blue moon, but it was the closest moon to earth for all of 2023 i have i i thought of it and then um but it was too late for me. i want i i think it's gonna be many years until we have two per two super moon full moons in the same month with one of them closest to the earth i mean it's it was amazing that blue moon too and um but let's move on to september uh, could i uh, interrupt yeah. you just for a second um so it was the closest the biggest and brightest of all the super Okay, and that's what I was going to ask. Year. So, so it actually does appear larger because it's closer to yes, the Earth. Yes, it does. Okay. And, and also when it's closer to the Earth, it it's not as as light as like, um, it, it, it doesn't get as many blue rays from the sun as when it's further away. But in, in September, we will have the final super moon of 2023, the final of four. And um, it's the harvest moon. Now, sometimes the harvest moon is in September and sometimes in October. Does anyone here know why? Um, I will volunteer to okay. say no, I do not know. <laughs> okay, does Steve, do you know why? I don't. Uh, you know, when we harvest every, every month here. <laughs> I know, right? Every so moon is the little, harvest moon for you. A little, yeah, it's always a little confusing yeah. for me. Well, no, it's interesting. Know. It's interesting because the, the moon is called the harvest moon that's closest to the autumn equinox, to the autumnal equinox. So this year, um, this September, the autumnal equinox is um, on, I think, the 23rd. And on the 29th is the fourth and final. So like every three years or so, it, the um, harvest moon is in, August, in October. And when September is not the harvest moon, it's the full corn moon. And when October is not the harvest moon, it's the hunter's moon. You got me completely confused. So okay. are, we, are we having the harvest moon in September? We are having the harvest moon on the 29th of September. Okay. You listen to the archive when you get home. You'll understand it. <laughs> I'll have to listen to this segment at least four times to get that. But um, anyway, so the, but sooner than that, the new moon is September 14th. And, um, and I just want to mention that we're going to have a comet. We have a comet that's pretty that's pretty people can see with the naked eye between mm. now and September 13th and um, it's just above the east to northeast horizon around sunrise and sunset and um, coming up in mid-October I'll just give you a little preview we have the great North American solar eclipse we will be able to see 
October's solar eclipse. So I'm very excited about that. And is I that, just is that a complete eclipse? It's um, it depends where you are. In some parts of North America, yes. In some parts, um, no. And I'll have more on that next month. It's actually on the back of this farmer's almanac. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and um, I just want to mention that um, we are currently at 13 hours and 52 minutes of, of daylight um, between dawn and dusk. And since the last time I was here in July, we've lost one hour and 56 minutes. But... Um, I just want to give you a little hope, Richard. We only have 108 days until the winter solstice, and then it'll start getting longer, the days. <laughs> keep hope alive, as, as, as and, I like to say. I'm going to uh, interject something, not interject, ask, ask a question. So a bunch of years ago, um, we'd get flooding during, well, during storms, but also, and people would say, oh, well, it's a full moon. Is the full moon always closest to the Earth when it's full? Um, no, the the moon has an orbit, and um, it it depends. No, it's not always okay. it's not always closest. To I the just moon remember that, not as far as I know. At a certain point, people are just saying, you know, the, a lot of flooding, you know, high tides, and it's a full moon. That's right. Yeah. But it's not. But it you was, know, it was like in the nineties when we were having storms. It has to do with the angle of the moon. I think the angle is different, maybe. Okay. When it's full, and, and they hadn't discovered astronomy yet in the '90s, so they didn't know. Well, how. and I and no, I questioned it. I thought, oh, maybe, that doesn't sound right. The, it's the it's not because it's full. The tides are higher. Yes. You know. Are you saying yes to that? I think that's true. I thought so too. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think so. So that would mean the moon's closest to I'm the confused. Earth during now, full <laughs> It must be closest. We're going to go no. some, anyway, we're gonna go right. to some music. Yeah. Now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is, Let's see what Steve a, has to say. This is a farming show. Yeah. This is spiraling into uh, into a complete uh, okay. chaotic mess. Okay. No, all right. But that was uh, very uh, elevating. I got to say, no thank pun you. intended. And eloquent. Thank you. Indeed. All right. Well, let. Uh, thank you. No, seriously. Thank you, Laura. It was it was fun. Always it, fun. It was fun to do it too. And uh, right. welcome back, by the way. Thank you. I missed two shows. I, I mm-hmm. and I missed you guys so yeah, much. Yeah, I should have. I should have uh, started this with a an excoriation. Is that the right way to say that? Of Laura uh. for missing two shows, but uh, <laughs> there's always time for that. So, Steve, uh, tell us more about your travails there in uh, in the hot. Temperatures, but also like what's going on at this stage of the fall, uh, early fall. You know, it's not the fall; it's not fall. But I mean, obviously, we have this. You can't even call it Indian summer. I mean, this is just crazy summer coming back. Uh, but what's what's the agenda there on the farm right now? So yeah, it is still summer. You know, we haven't reached the um, the the equinox or the, the you know for fall. So it's summertime and it's it's way too hot right now for us. But we did have kind of a glorious week last week with a touch of fall and, and all the humidity out, uh, and it felt like we should be getting ready for you know fall crops. And and what we do at that time, you know, all the crops that we've harvested already, we start you know uh, turning into cover crop. So that's planting our own fertility, putting things down like oats and peas and buckwheat and vetch, and we use some Japanese millet. Um, later in the season, we'll be doing some winter rye in a couple of places. So we're sort of putting those those beds uh, to rest for the season and, and making sure they get a good growth 
of that green manure that we want. So, you know, our farm is a vegetable farm, and we have some chickens here too, but we don't have livestock, uh, you know, to fertilize the fields. Um, so we grow our, our fertility uh, with the cover crop and it also protects the soil over the winter. So that's one of the tasks for right now. And then we're also still planting and sowing. So last week I was getting more radishes, arugula, salad mix into the ground. Um, we're still planting lettuce. We still have, uh, you know, a little bit of um, uh, uh, more planting to do in our tunnels. Actually, we're, we're, we'll be transitioning some of our high tunnels from summer crops into fall and winter crops over the next month. So we've got two, funnel, two tunnels still full of tomatoes, uh, but some other crops have finished off in the tunnels, like where we grow cucumbers and things. So we'll be preparing those for lettuce and kale and some overwintered onions. Uh, so there's still uh, quite a lot to do, especially at a place like us, like ours, where we grow year-round. This is, this is our, our next window of planting uh, for late fall and through the winter. So we want to get things in the ground and established in September and October that can last us through the winter. Even if they don't do a lot of growing, they can kind of hibernate uh, and be ready for us. So this is still a heavy time for us in terms of field activities, you know, putting those beds to rest, uh, turning them into cover crop and getting more crops planted for the fall and winter uh, harvests. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question, Steve. It, it's um, I've been seeing a lot of talk about the invasion of the spotted lanternfly and how detrimental it can be to certain crops. What What is your take on this? Because they've come from Asia and they seem to be taking over our country and people are being instructed by <laughs> the state of enough. Connecticut to stomp on them. <laughs> Well, they, uh, they're around for sure. It's not, you know, I want to say for our crops, I'm not particularly concerned about it. We do have um, the tree of heaven, uh, which is kind of a weedy tree, if you will. It's also uh, the, the genus is Ailanthus, um, and the spotted lanternfly likes that tree. So if you've got that around, it's a good place to look for them and see if you can. Uh, eliminate them at that tree. But yeah, uh, you know, in terms of vegetable crops, I'm not familiar with their damage and we're not seeing spotted lanternfly damage on our crops. Um, but I think they have some other impact. I can't say I'm fluent in uh, the issues that they will cause, but I do know to look out for them. Um, and the tree of heaven is a place that um, you can find, find them hanging I, out. I think they have a preference for fruit crops. Orchards. That, that may be. That may be. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm not up to speed uh, on uh, what their preferences are. Okay. Steve, t talk to us about tomatoes. This is the time of year, I guess, late mid to late August and into the early part of September when tomatoes are like at their most uh, divine kind of robustness. What What's happening with your crop? And uh, I think Laura actually has uh, an article in the yeah. Farmers Almanac about ripening green tomatoes, and, and there, I guess there will be a time when uh, there are a lot of green tomatoes on the vine. It gets to be late later in the in the toward fall, and, and you want to know what to do with those. So, what's your what's the status of your tomato crop? The tomato crop has been great for us. It is still sort of in full swing. You know, we typically hope to be harvesting some by mid-July. This year was pushed a little bit later to late July, early August. But August and September are pretty robust months. 
Um, but as we get to the end of the month, it will see the ripening slow down, you know, just because of shorter day lengths. So, so even in our tunnels where it's warmer and we can control the conditions and if we've got cooler nights, we can roll down the sides and close the doors. You know, there's still, uh, you know, with the dwindling daylight, uh, it's harder for, um, or it's a bit slower for the tomatoes to ripen. And in those conditions, what I find is that um, it just doesn't develop the same, the tomatoes don't develop the same flavor um, when they ripen slowly. So we like to recommend people actually um, use the green tomatoes. Green tomatoes are delicious and can be used in lots of ways. Um, one of the things we do, we um, we try to make a green tomato salsa. So we, we've already made our uh, heirloom salsa from a mix of heirloom tomatoes. We've made marinara sauce. And, and usually in the fall, we try to harvest those green tomatoes and make green tomato salsa. But you can you can eat them as is. You can cook them up yourself in lots of different recipes. So, uh, But you can also leave them on the counter and let them ripen. I just think they don't develop the flavor quite as well in, these, in those shorter days. And so I tend to be uh, eating fewer raw tomatoes, fewer sliced tomatoes. You know, uh, the tomato sandwich is kind of a classic for summer. Uh, you know, or you know, whether it's the tomato by itself, or if you like it with a little mayonnaise or a little mustard, or if you want to, you know, whatever sandwich you want to have it on. If it's not uh, by itself, um, I feel like this is the time for that. As it gets a little later in the season, I think they're better for cooking or processing. Fantastic. Yeah, we. I was just a little anecdote here. I was, um, my partner Leslie was out. At the uh, our compost pile, where we dump the compost from our barrel, and you know leaves and and uh, grass clippings and vegetable stuff, and the the whole nine yards. And she was out there yesterday, and she found pumpkins, delicate squash, and tomatoes, and, and some zucchini coming, but they haven't right, they haven't actually formed fruits yet. But all that stuff was growing on our compost pile, and I was it was funny because anytime I've tried to grow those vegetables in our little garden plot, they get, uh, you know, destroyed by the uh, woodchuck and other other critters. And there they were flourishing on our compost pile. Very funny. Anyway. Yeah, it does happen. The compost pile is a particularly great place for squashes and cucumbers and such. Uh, But nice to see a tomato coming out of there, too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. They're all oh, their tomatoes. Are, they're all cherry tomatoes, and they're all green. But uh, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, not not to not to kick them out of bed. Well, yeah, I mean, there's if you have you know this article that I wrote um, in Farmers Almanac is is mainly geared towards if you if there's a big storm coming or a big frost and you have a lot, there are things you can do if you want to you know ripen some of them. And there's also a recipe for for fried green tomatoes. Yeah. No, there's a. It's. I agree. Fried uh, green tomatoes are fun, delicious, and uh, yeah, you can have some nice uh, huevos rancheros with. Yeah, easy, easy. Yeah. Great yeah. We even now we bring some green tomatoes to market um, because they're because people want them. So we you know we bring mostly ripe tomatoes, but we make sure we bring green tomatoes to market too. Um, so. Um, uh, we're not, uh, for some reason, we're not able to reach uh, Vincent K., but I did want to chime in on the tomato thing. So 
Is there a basic summary, put them in a sunny window or put them in a dark well, drawer? I talk about four methods, about the paper bag method, where you put them in a paper bag and you close up the paper bag and they're, the, the chemical that they, or the, you know, the, they emit ethylene, and when you put it in enclosed space, it increases the amount and it ripens them. And then you can put them on the windowsill, There's, that's an approach. And then um, you, hang, you can hang them upside down and you can put them in a box. Those are the four things that I discuss in oh, my article. In a closed box or? Um, you'll have to read the article. A shoe box. <laughs> okay. No, I meant closed, closed as in not well, open. Can you put them in the same bag as the bananas? That you're also trying to write. I think so, yeah. <laughs> but you do close the box. I'm just cheesing you. But you, you can. But bananas, um, you can add a ripe banana to the bag of. You can. I say that. Oh my god. <laughs> good, good call. Yeah. Wow. You never know. All right. Well, so let's see. Let's. Oh, I'll. Yep. Call. I'll call up our first Gr- guest. You gonna call her now? All right. We got all kinds of stuff going on here. Phone calls. Let's see, let's go back to Steve and have our panel close close. I'll close their mic so Steve can talk a little bit more. Oh, yeah. So Steve, um, any exciting fall events coming up at the farm? There are. Well, this this weekend, this Sunday night is our annual dinner on the farm, which is a big fundraiser that we do in a really fun night um, with dinner out under a tent, which is up. Uh, right now in our yard, uh, hopefully actually the conditions will allow us to have dinner in the field. That's our general plan. But right now we're looking at storms for the weekend. So uh, if we need to be set up under the tent, we will be. Uh, so that's coming up. It is sold out, unfortunately. But if um, you know people want to support us and participate, we do have an online uh, auction. And, and all the proceeds from this help with our um, fresh produce donations to health and human service agencies in the greater New Haven and lower Naugatuck Valley region and also help support uh, our free and sliding scale educational programs that we have at the farm. Um, So that's happening this Sunday. We are um, booking lots of field trips for the fall. So school groups who come to us um, and we're, we're really putting together our fall set of programs um, right now. So I think maybe, maybe next show I can speak more about what's coming up. Uh, we've got this big event ahead and then uh, more coming down the road uh, later this fall. Uh, and I should just add, you know, for the, the other things going on in the field, you know, we started bringing in, you mentioned your delicata squash from your compost. We just brought in our delicata and spaghetti squash. And though our plants look really wonderful, uh, the rain this year, you know, put a little bit of a damper on our harvest. Um, the delicata turned out okay, but the spaghetti squash, we had a lot of fruit, but a lot of rot. And I think with the, all the rain that we had and the puddling, you have, you know, ripening fruit um, sitting in, you know, wet ground, making for rotting spots. So that was a little bit disappointing for us, but we still have our, our butternuts and, and acorn-type squash to harvest, and we're hoping they hold up a little better. Uh, our delicata squash looks pretty good. So the nice thing with delicata and spaghetti squash is we, we bring them in now, and they don't need any more curing. So we can sort of distribute them uh, you know, at this time of year, whereas our butternuts and acorns, they, uh, they can store for quite a while, so we can hold them into, into the fall and winter um, but once the temperatures cool again, we'll, we'll consider picking those out of the field and seeing how they're doing. Um, so, yeah, this is a moment where we're doing our, our squash, our winter squash harvest, our potato harvest. We started pulling up uh, potatoes. We'll start sweet potatoes soon. Uh, we've got a nice crop of carrots that 
we've started to harvest and uh, more successions of carrots coming over the next couple of months that we're looking forward to pick. So a little bit of a transition where we still have our summer crops, our tomatoes, our peppers, our eggplants, but we're starting to bring in those, those fall crops uh, that people think about. All right, Steve, thank you so much for that. And, um, you know, we're going to, because we have this jam-packed schedule today, and Vincent was a little bit late getting on air, we're going to bring Vincent on for a quick report, and then we're going to go into our farm labor report in honor of Labor Day week. So, uh, Vincent, how's it going out there in the, uh, I think you're out there today. We are here. <laughs> Did you, can you hear me? Yes, yes indeed. Okay, good. We're, we're working in um, with bees today in uh, Westbrook, Connecticut. Uh, we have a very large bee yard of about 30, 35 hives right along the Amtrak tracks. Often, um, in fact, if, if the train comes by, you'll hear it. But um, <laughs> often the, the, the conductor will toot his whistle and we wave and stop. And, you know, someday we'll be famous. You know, I'm sure we'll be immortalized. And it's uh, <laughs> quite an event. But anyhow, it's, it's great to... Uh, to be here it's kind of a swampy area but right now i'm looking at the field where the bees are and um there's ironweed and there's goldenrod and joe pie weed and uh of course japanese knotweed um the bees have actually taken on in the last um since i've talked with you last a large amount of weight so this is excellent it's exactly what we try to time um the population increase with the bees we try to make sure that everyone has good queens and um, they're healthy without disease or mites, stuff like that, so that they can take advantage, full advantage of these nectar flows before winter sets in. And uh, so that's what we're, we're, we're checking the hives now, but um, things are looking really, really good. Um, and this is all, of course, um, after we've harvested honey for um, human consumption. So we've already done that. We finished that in August, uh, the beginning of August. And... Um, and now it's all winter prepped. It's um, and they're doing it themselves. We're, we're doing very little except just monitoring things. And um, you know, as you know, um, mostly, I mean, honeybees are the only insect that need to have um, stored food going into the winter because they don't hibernate. Most of all the other insects that you'll see alongside honeybees pollinating or gathering food in the wild, those insects will die usually the first frost. And it's the queen bee only, say for hornets or blue orchard bee or even a bumblebee. Uh, it's just the queen that, that uh, uh, goes into the wild and burrows into the leaves and hibernates, actually goes into dormancy uh, for the mo- winter months. Mm. However, the honeybees have to you know, gather a lot of food in order to survive cold winters. So that's why uh, you, know, you, you see them working so hard right now, and it, it's always such a... Um, interesting thing to try to interact with um, uh, municipalities and, and water companies and different agencies that have control over um, foliage and um, when to mow, for instance. Um, you know, we, we always try to emphasize um, for food value for not just honeybees, but for birds as well as other insects, the food value of, of just waiting a week or 10 days until flowers bloom. Uh, it's, it's so important, especially in a suburbanized state like Connecticut, where it's, it's getting more and more crowded. So it's it's important to take a look at those policies. And if people can interact with their agencies and ask them to, you know, um, 
to hold off on mowing until like the first frost, stuff like that. That makes a huge difference. Um, a few years ago, we did an open letter to the state of Connecticut called How Are the Bees? Because everyone was asking us, how are the bees? And we felt that this was uh, something that we, we responded to many hundreds of agencies, the Audubon Society, everyone um, was interested in knowing. And so we wrote a letter um, saying some of the things that you could do to help. Of course, planting more food would would be beneficial. Clover seed, any kind of wildflower mixes. These are important things for citizens to do. It should be just part of our routine spring, uh, you know, plantings. But um, other things like mowing schedules, um, when to mow, when not to mow, extremely important and can influence huge populations of, of birds, especially that migrate through and, and pick uh the berries off autumn olive and cedar, blue cedar berries, et cetera. You know, if you can leave those standing, and of course everyone needs to mow things, so this is a, an important thing. Um, but, you know, the, the timing of it is crucial. Um, but right now we're just, um, and when I say there's a lot of bees in these hives, I mean, we're, we've been surprised all morning. This is our uh, fourth bee yard today, and uh, we were in uh, North Madison and, uh, and Guilford, and now we're in Westbrook. But the hives just are outstanding, and the flight of bees coming back and forth across the field is. <laughs> I mean, we have to have bee suits on. I'm, I'm, work, I'm talking to you now with the phone inside the bee suit because there's just a lot of bees. It's great. <laughs> Vincent, what a great report! And uh, unfortunately, we we have to abbreviate it a little bit be- today because uh, we have two more guests to squeeze in here. And, I but, understand. But yeah. it, but you know, please hang out if you can. And, uh, you know, who knows, you might, you might have some, uh, uh, some comment or, or question you want to put to our, one or, or both of our guests. But, okay, uh, I'll drag the phone with us along as we uh-huh. work through the bees here, and um, I will uh, keep, it, keep it handy so I can try and it if need be. <laughs> okay, thanks, Vincent. Thanks, Thank Vincent. That's, that's Vincent yeah. K. Plows into short. Pl- swords into plowshares, honey. <laughs> oh, please, God, help me today. All right, so... <laughs> Um, uh, now, take it away, Laura. Next up, um, we have Bria Church, who is from Westport, and she is currently a freshman at the University of Vermont in um, the Arts and Science program. And um, she has spent the last two summers as an intern at the Wakeman Town Farm in Westport and has worked very hard. And she's going to tell us what that's like. Hi, Bria. Well, hello from Connecticut. Hi, good to be here. So, can you hear me all right? Yep. Yes, we yes. can. Well, tell okay. us, you, you, for two summers you've been an intern, or actually one one summer, you the second summer you were an intern, I think. No, she, she was an intern for two. The first was unpaid and the second was paid. Oh, okay, great. All right, so tell us, what's, what, uh, what interested you in doing that kind of work? And then tell us a little bit about what it entailed. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've always, like, loved being in gardens and working with, like, real fresh food is just, like, so and so nice and kind of just, um, you know, love being, like, in the outdoors and connecting with, like, nature and now with the farm, with my, like, actual community, seeing people I know from my neighborhood, seeing people, like, all come together and, and work on this. Uh, communal uh, property is just absolutely such a great experience. Um, 
I got started with it from the National Charity League, the Mother Daughter National Charity League, um, volunteering like a couple times during the season, and I just completely fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. So, what are your duties, or what were they, and, and how did they change? Uh, you know, as the uh, as the two two summers inf- un- yeah, totally. unfolded. Yeah. So in the, you know, like spring, early spring, I actually did a high school internship this year as well, the senior internship. And it was a lot of prep, you know, getting all of the paths mulched and cardboarded, making sure all of the beds had enough soil or fresh compost if they needed to be revamped. Um, and it was a lot of planting, which was super enjoyable. And, and uh, there was a lot of transplants. So not everything was started from seed, but uh, we also got to start a lot from seed as well and see like everything grow throughout the year. And then, you know, as the summer goes on, it was more maintenance. So a lot of, you know, weeding and pruning and uh, fertilizers and uh, all of that pest management um, with different, different methods. Um, There is some for like the squash bugs, for instance, like taking, tape and just going around to like literally all of the squash plants and just try and get those little squash bug eggs off but um, which was it's so nice refreshing that you didn't just spray everything no exactly yes and um it kind of connected you with the plant more too because it was it was labor intensive but it was also like um you know much more of i'm helping this thing grow by literally getting in there and doing the work and not just spraying. Yeah. So that's an, that's an organic farm. I take it. Yes. It's not like certified organic because I believe some of the like pellets we feed the animals are um, not completely organic, but we don't use any like chemicals um, or in like fertilizers or pesticides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you said, well, that's, that's, Fascinating. And I, I know Steve is still on the line, probably. Steve, you know, can you how do you compare what uh, Brea is saying in terms of like person to plant management there in terms of the bugs? Uh, how does that work on your farm as well? Well, you know, there's different ways that we approach it, depending on the, the pest and the, the crop and such. Um, so, you know, some things like in our tunnels with tomatoes, you know, there are things that we can pull off by hand and, and early in the season on things like our chard or beets, you know, we're trying to get at eggs and then our squash plants, we're trying to get at eggs of uh, some pests before they emerge. So there is hand work on that. There is hand removal of some bugs sometimes, but then uh, as we get into different crops uh, in the field, that's not possible at at times. So it it really depends on, on the crop and the time of year and the pest. Uh, but I'm really glad to hear of um, your progression at the farm. And I'm sort of curious, you know, is this, you know, the, the opportunities for you to come back in the future and, and to grow your engagement at the farm and, and how that's impacting what you're doing in Vermont now at school and, and uh, how you can be involved in farms there? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in coming back at least to like visit and volunteer a couple times next summer. I don't really know what my future plans are for like the next couple coming years. You know, being a college student, it's uh, a lot of trying to find internships here and et cetera. But 
Um, for school, I am like undecided in majoring, but I, since working at the farm, I was looking more and more into agricultural programs, and Vermont has such a good one that I was like, well, if I do end up deciding on that, I, you know, Vermont is a great place <laughs> to study agriculture and to and to appreciate it, and at least so it's a, it's a good option. Fantastic, Brea. Um, you want to? We're going to try to get uh, Megan Fountain Isn't on. It, yeah. Is she um, on yet? Or? No, no, not, no, not yet. yet. Okay. Um, we, I know that you have to leave in the, about six minutes to go to class. Um, yeah. And but I, I, I'm just wondering, how has your um, thoughts on farming now that you're up there in Vermont and you're seeing things from a different in a different light? How are you processing your experiences at the farm? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I. I think I really appreciate like the small community farm a lot more because here it's um, kind of bigger practices oh, that I'm seeing different. and um, it's a little hard to get like fully, fully integrated in something that's um, much bigger. So it's a little hard to get um, so involved, especially as like a first year and whatever. But um, so having that opportunity to have to work on a, um, you know, community farm and to connect in that way was such an awesome experience, especially to like um, transition into that. It's a, a possible career option. That's great. So, and t so tell us a little bit more about Wakeman Community Farm. I'm not sure exact, the exact title of the, the Wakeman farm. Wakeman Town Farm. Say it again. Wakeman Town Farm. It's town Farm, yeah. We actually had, uh, I think, the manager or one of the, you know, the administrators of the farm on the show a few years ago. So, uh, but remind us a little bit about the operation there and what its, uh, what its goals are, you know, what its uh, um, agenda is. For sure. I mean, I'll do my best as an intern, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's a town farm, as in the name. But so it's really to connect um, the community with um, organic, like, grown food and to show, like, a more sustainable way of growing your own food it's, um, as a backyard option. So we have a pollinator garden as well. We have uh, a beehive, some like animals that's like alpaca. Um, Oops. We lose Brea? We lost Brea. Oh. Um, oh, there she is. Okay. She's back? Yeah, leave it. She's back. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, Brea. Okay. Um, and so it's really just to get the community, I think, more aware of like a sustainable like way of living and um, access to organic grown food. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's doing a great job of, of doing those goals, I guess. So uh, just last word, Brea, is, far, yeah. is farm labor difficult? Is it hard? Is it, uh, you know, is it you really get a workout doing it? Or, you know, is it kind of easy breezy? Uh, some days are harder than others. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of hard work. Um, getting up at seven or eight most days while my friends were sleeping in was not always ideal, but it was it was worth it once you got there. And, and it's such a great start to your day to be doing something productive and 
being outside and working hard and getting sweat going that it just uh, it made sense in my mind it was worth it to me hard work but always worth it cool thank you so much bria i I know you have to get to class, and I'm really glad that you were able to take some time with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. Good good luck, and we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. And now, if all our technical ducks are in a row, we'd like to bring into the uh, conversation Megan Fountain, who is one of the directors of uh, ULA, which is Unidad Latina en Acción, based, I think, in New Haven. Uh, Megan, are you with us? Hi, Richard. I'm here, and I'm a former um, organizer with ULA. Oh, I thought, okay. Because I, 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 I was assumed you were still associated with that organization. Yeah, well, t- so what we were doing today is we're kind of sort of extending Labor Day throughout the entire week. <laughs> It's going to go right on through Sunday, actually, here at We're w- going to keep going until it gets cool out. <laughs> and, uh, Wonderful. So we're focusing on, on, the, on the issue of farm labor, actually. And given that uh, ULA is, is, is a support group for, uh, to, in, to some degree, uh, undocumented workers in all sectors, but they also uh, support, I think, farm, farm workers, we call, we're calling on you today to give us some information about what uh, the status and kind of um, struggles of uh, undocumented workers are in Connecticut on the farms. Can you, can you provide us with any information of that type? Well, I'd like to start with a story about when I first learned about Uh, When I first met a group of migrant farm workers in Connecticut, um, it was back in 2011 when I was a volunteer organizer at ULA, and I met three men who were living and working in slavery-like conditions at Riverside Dairy Farm in Northford, Connecticut, And um, one of those workers, Jose Garcia, um, told his story and he said, I worked for almost five years at Riverside Dairy like a slave. I started milking cows every morning at 3 a.m. and I finished at 7 p.m. The boss had us living in a dilapidated house. One day there was a rainstorm and half of the house fell down completely. We had to live with blankets instead of walls to keep the cold out. Every week the boss cashed our paychecks, but he did not give us all of the cash and he said he would pay the rest later. So Jose told that story to the press. Uh, we, we organized a rally with him and his coworkers. That was back in 2011. They, we helped them file a complaint with the Connecticut Department of Labor. And uh, the Connecticut Department of Labor found, you know, they investigated the case and they found that Mr. Joe Spizzano, the owner, had defrauded these workers of $140,000 because he was only paying them between 2 and $5 per hour, or to be exact, $1.43 an hour at some time, 
or $4.29 per hour. And they were working long hours, 70 to 80 hours per week. So he wasn't paying them the minimum wage and he wasn't paying them. He wasn't paying them the overtime rate. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, um, what happened is the workers, um, they complained to the Department of Labor and the Department of Labor, um, you know, met with the owner and asked him to pay and he did not want to pay. And they actually took out an arrest warrant for the owner um, and put him um, put him through criminal proceedings for defrauding immigrant laborers, failure to pay minimum wage, failure to pay overtime. And, you know, it ended up being a long battle in the courts and on the streets to get justice for those workers. Tell us uh, how how this, you know, kind of fast forward into the present day situation. Do you have any information like about what farm workers are being paid now, um, be they documented or undocumented? Uh, we now have, I think, a minimum wage of $15 an hour in Connecticut. Um, are, are the farm workers receiving that pay? And is this kind of fraud uh, reoccurring in any instances here in Connecticut that you know of? Yeah, unfortunately, um, well, there have been some continuities and some changes, not enough changes. Um, So, you know, one thing that we need in in Connecticut and we need the Biden Department of Labor to take action to have stronger laws and protections for farm workers. And the other thing that we need is better enforcement of those laws. And the third thing that we need is more empowerment of the workers. We need strong organizations that, you know, speak multiple languages that are building community and building trust and building power with these workers. I think those are the three things that are really needed. Uh, Better laws, better enforcement of the laws, and more organizing power for these workers. So um, the laws are weak for agricultural workers because historically um, the first labor laws in the United States were created in the 1930s during the New Deal era, during the Great Depression era. It was a big leap forward for many workers, but the U.S. Congress made a pact with racist lawmakers mostly from the South, to exclude agricultural workers and domestic workers from all of those labor protections. That is the legacy that continues today. So farm workers and domestic workers, that's um, domestic workers are mostly women, mostly women of color today. You know, back then it was almost almost exclusively black women. Um, Today it's a lot of black women and migrant women who clean houses and care for elderly people in their homes and care for children in the home. These workers uh, are excluded from the most basic labor rights that other workers enjoy, which is the minimum wage, um, the overtime, the health and safety regulations that are enforced by OSHA. Um, 
you know, little by little, uh, we're working to undo those exclusions and to include those workers. Um, so, for example, until just a few years ago, domestic workers were not protected by the sexual harassment laws in Connecticut. We, we just fixed that just a couple of years ago. Um, agricultural workers, you know, they may not be earning the Connecticut $15 minimum wage. It, and so we need to work together with the Connecticut Department of Labor um, to strengthen those rights. But then we also really need to ramp up the enforcement because wage theft is the crime that goes unpunished. Um, you know, most farmers and business owners want to do the right thing. Um, and it's not fair that they should have to compete with, um, you know, the smaller but significant number of employers who are breaking the law and exploiting workers. Yeah, I, I you know, the his, I, this wonderful that you provided that history of <clears throat> labor law and the exclusions allowed for farm workers and particularly migrant labor in the United States as a whole, I, I, it would be interesting to, to know the actual data on to what extent our, our agricultural uh, machinery in this country is, is, is operated by migrant labor. I think it's very, very high percentage. Um, last uh, thing I'd like to do here is to invite Steve Munno to, to join us for a moment just to give his uh, perspective on, you know, like what small farms do regarding seasonal work. In other words, is it mostly college students, high school students, or are there any um, undocumented workers that you know of that are working on small farms in Connecticut? Um, you know, on small farms, I'm, I'm not sure. I, you know, the, the community of small farmers that I know uh, are not using um, migrant labor, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to hear it's happening. And, and I'd be curious from Megan to hear how prevalent it is, uh, you know, at the different size farms throughout the state. But I think lots of small farms like ours or smaller, medium size, size farms, you know, the whether it's a manager at, a, you know, at a, at a property like Masara where, where there's not an owner operator, but, you know, a manager operator is working the farm as well as labor that we hire that are, you know, local local folks and in the summer we try to add on you know college students or people who work in the school system in some capacity or uh high school students to some degree um i think that's making up a lot of the labor people who are you know have summer available for seasonal work uh so you know because our our staff expands for you know late june through july and into august and then it, it decreases as school is back in session it's definitely challenging for us um but uh, that, that's part of the cycle and how we have to manage. Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, very uh, complex process of trying to work it out with the seasonal uh, function of, of a small farm or a mm -hmm. large farm. I want to thank everybody. Thank uh, you, everybody. Thank you, Megan Fountain, for joining us so much. And uh, Chris Ferrio. Sure. Thank La you. Laura Modlin. Thank you. Steve Mono from Masaro Farm. You, Richard Hill. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is the Gaia Gram.
Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. According to oil giant ExxonMobil, who is one of the more prominent architects of our planet's fossil fuel-laden usage, humanity is likely to fail its climate goals of halting a global temperature rise of 2 degrees Celsius by 2050. As the Wall Street Journal reports, Exxon published its grim prediction in a recent climate report effectively arguing that while global climate change efforts have made some progress, the company says CO2 emissions caused by world fossil fuel consumption will fall by just 25 billion metric tons by 2050, which will mark a 26% decrease from the decade's peak of 34 billion. But it simply won't be enough to curb that dreaded two-degree global temperature uptick. According to Reuters, the Exxon report says an energy transition is underway, but it is not yet happening at the scale or on the timetable required to achieve society's net zero ambitions. Meanwhile, a proposal to phase out CO2-emitting fossil fuels at COP27 last year, which last one backing from more than 80 countries while oil and gas rich nations opposed it. European Union countries are preparing to push for a global deal on phasing out fossil fuels at the new COP28 climate summit. Diplomats from the bloc's 27 member states are drafting their position for the summit in Dubai in November, where nearly 200 countries will try to strengthen efforts to rein in climate change. A draft of the EU's negotiating stance seen by Reuters says the shift towards a climate-neutral economy will require the global phase-out unabated of fossil fuels and a peak in their consumption in the near term. Barron's reports that on a tiny Caribbean island, hundreds of people are preparing to pack up and move to escape the rising waters, threatening to engulf their already precarious homes. Surrounded by idyllic clear waters, the densely populated island of Carti Sagatupu off Panama's north coast has barely an inch to spare, with many houses crammed together, some jutting out into the sea on stilts. With homes already flooded on a regular basis, experts say the sea will engulf the island and dozens of neighboring islands by the end of this century. Florida Governor DeSantis rejected millions in climate funding. Now his state is suffering from a storm that was fueled by climate change. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis rejected $350 million in federal funds meant to tackle climate change just months before Hurricane Idalia flooded the state. DeSantis used a line-item veto in June to reject a $5 million federal grant to set up a rebate program for Floridians who retrofit their homes with energy-efficient appliances. This, in turn, meant that Florida couldn't access the $341 million the Inflation Reduction Act allotted to fund the program. A federal judge found a Trump-era rule change that allowed the logging of old-growth forests in the Pacific Northwest violates several laws. A U.S. magistrate judge recently found that the U.S. Forest Service violated the National Environmental Policy Act, the National Forest Management Act, and the Endangered Species Act when it amended a protection that had been in place since 1994. The findings came in response to a lawsuit filed by multiple environmental groups over the change. Panasonic is testing power-generating glass, which it expects to start selling by 2028, for use in a wide range of buildings. Perovskite solar cells are integrated with the glass to produce a photovoltaic layer that's just one micron thick sandwiched between two sheets of glass substrate. 
The manufacturing process uses a combination of Panasonic's original inkjet coating method and laser processing technology to produce large panels of varying size that remain transparent enough to act as windows. This was the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. Hi, this is Ian Hunter. You're listening to WPKN, Bridgeport, Connecticut, 89.5 FM. Listener-supported community radio streaming around the world on WPKN.org.